Turn, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 1. And if you are borrowing one of my English Standard Bibles, it's page 240. 1 Kings chapter 1. It's not how well you start, it's how you finish. That is what matters. Just ask the tortoise and the hare. As you know, the the hare had the fast start, the good start, miles ahead of the tortoise. But he didn't finish too well, resting confident in how far he'd gone, and eventually the tortoise, slow and steady, but he did. He did indeed finish the race. It's not how you start, but it is indeed how you finish. And that, unfortunately, is what we would tack on to the life of Solomon, King Solomon, the third king of Israel's nation. And he started with a flare. It was, it was like a firework just shot from a cannon, and it soared higher and higher, and it exploded beautifully in the night sky. And just as suddenly, it turned to smoke and was blown away. So I want to consider, as we look at 1 Kings 1 through 5, Solomon's jump start, but then we're also going to see um, briefly that he did decline a little bit. Mike will get into that more in detail next week. But before we go there, um, opening up a new book, uh, you always have the privilege of showing us where we're going to be. What are you going to expect as you read your chapter a day? So the book of First Kings is actually um, the third part of a great work, starting from First Samuel and ending at the end of Second Kings. Jewish tradition generally regards those four books, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, as one historical work. And so we're actually looking into the third part as we open 1 Kings. The writer, we don't know who wrote it, but we believe that the writer was a prophet. Because when you read this book, you will, in fact, in the first chapter, you will see the emphasis of the prophet's work in Israel. And 1 Kings seems to be designed to show that it's the prophet of God and God's word through him that is much more powerful than the king of Israel and the sword that he uses. So the word of God through the prophet always prevails over the sword of the king. And that is what the prophet seems to want to show us through 1 Kings. Every time that a king finishes his reign, the prophet will compare how he did with the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, showing, okay, he did adhere to the law or he didn't adhere to the law, therefore he did good or he didn't do good as a king. And so um, that is the perspective of this book. Now, the kings were to be extensions of God's reign. So in a sense, we still have a theocratic system a theocracy where God is the one ruling. But in a smaller sense, it's a monarchy because God is choosing these kings to be extensions of his sovereign choices. And these kings are to be led through the law, Genesis and Deuteronomy, through Deuteronomy. And so they're to be representing God. And 
when they did not, they failed. But when they did, Israel was blessed. And so again, the book of 1 Kings is in many ways an extension from the law as an illustration to show what happens when man says we don't need the Mosaic law or what happens when man says we're going to adhere to it. And we see that Israel is blessed as long as they hold God's word higher than the throne of the king. Now, 1 Kings opens up. If you can, can we get the first slide up there? 1 Kings opens up in 10, excuse me, in um, 970 BC. Now, um, I've given you the Old Testament timeline up there, starting from creation, unknown date, all the way up to, through the entire Old Testament. Um, you can see in 1 Kings there, that we hit the point where Solomon, sorry, on the second line, Solomon enters into his rule. Now, um, the book of 1 Kings covers about 400 years, and this stage that we're, I'm sorry, First and Second Kings covers about 400 years. The stage we're at in biblical history, in Israel's history, well, uh, we know that Abraham was called by God, Genesis 12, and that's where the nation started. And Abraham started to have sons and sons and sons. And eventually Jacob moved down into Egypt. And the, re uh, the rest of the family went with Jacob into Egypt. And that was about 1876 B.C. And then you go through Exodus. That was about 430 years from the slavery to their deliverance. And the deliverance was 1446 B.C. So there Israel was in Exodus, or in Egypt, for 400 years. And then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cover about 40 years. Those three books deal with the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And we look at that miserable affair that they had, but finally God brings in Joshua. They cross the Jordan River in 1406, and the whole book of Joshua covers oh, a little more than 50 years. And that we see the conquest of the land of Canaan is complete about 1400 BC. And then the brutal judges start. Joshua dies. Israel is lacking leadership. And so every man does what is right in his own eyes. And that whole span of judges in which the book of Ruth fits into lasts a dreaded 300 years. And then finally, God raises up a king, King Saul. Now, King Saul reigned for 40 years, and we already went through his story in 1 Samuel. And he started well, but he ended terribly. And then God's man rose up, David. He reigned for 40 years. And we read of his account in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, they parallel. That's 1010 BC. And David is God's man because God makes a covenant with David which says essentially that your son will build me a temple, because David couldn't. He had to invest all his time protecting the borders of Israel as a warrior. So your son, Solomon, is going to build a temple. And the second side of this promise is that your son will never cease to sit on the throne of Israel. Now, Solomon died, and so did Solomon's son. 
And in fact, there is no king on the throne of Israel right now. The promise is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, whom we await to come and retake that throne. So in the Davidic covenant, that's what we call it, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant we see given to David, he's God's king because in many ways Jesus is going to come and be a king just like David. And then we come here. That's where we come to 1 Kings. The year is 970 B.C., so we've seen about 80 years go by since 1 Samuel, two kings, and um, David is in decline. He's on his deathbed. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story. Now, I can imagine the scene working like this here in verse 1. King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought from my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag, the Shulamite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. What in the world is the Bible advocating here? We must wonder. Now, if we take this as a model with our girlfriends when we're sick or any other beautiful woman, um, I'll take a pocket knife and rip your head off, guys. <laughs> now, but to look at this sensibly and practically, they've done everything they can for David. He has been, they've piled on 50 piles of covers, all down feather and everything, and the guy is still shivering out of his clothes. They don't know what to do. Medicine's very limited in these days. Um, so the natural thing to do is to use body heat. Now, why do they pick a woman? I suggest it's a lot better than picking a guy to cuddle up with in bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> right there, um, I'm not saying that, you know, when you're cold, that's the, go find the beautiful girl downtown. And you guys, we have many other means in these days. But it was actually normal therapeutic use all the way up until the Middle Ages to do this, to use a young woman to make someone warm. Just strictly using body. It says David did not have sex with her. So he was very moral and upright in his dealings with this situation. They used the means that they had. The last objection might be, why a young woman? David had several wives. Why weren't one of them available? Um, maybe they've had it with him <laughs> after 40 years of his life or his reign. <laughs> the king needs one of you. Oh, I'm busy tonight. <laughs> or it possibly most sensibly is that um, they all were busy with kids, perhaps, or other duties in the palace. And a young woman was someone who really had no responsibility to a person she was free, so she could be enlisted into the king's service. So there we go. We've got rid of our Bible difficulty right off the bat, so we can move on. 
And so here's David. He's old. He's in decline. And he's sitting there shivering in bed next to beautiful Abishag. And I can, I can see the scene now. Solomon's perhaps in the room with him. And he's nervously looking out the window. Jerusalem's a very, very different place than it normally is on this day. It's quiet. The market isn't crowded. It, there aren't people hustling and bustling about. There's a strange feel in the air that, that there's something up. And Solomon doesn't like it because David doesn't seem to know about it. He doesn't know about it. And, well, he waits upon his father, and he's there helping. Meanwhile, Solomon didn't have unnecessary suspect, uh, suspicions, for there was down in the Enrogel Valley, which is just outside the walls of Jerusalem, a son of David, the oldest living son, named Adonijah. Now, I'm going to call him, since all these Hebrew names can get very confusing, we get them all jumbled. They, a lot of them start with A and Adonijah, Abishag, which one's which. I'm going to give them all character names so that you guys can follow the story. Adonijah, I'm going to call Audacious Adonijah because that is exactly what he was. In his arrogance, he took bold steps and Audacious Adonijah was no different here. He was very handsome and definitely had a following as the oldest prince in the kingdom. Very good looking, had the greatest fashion. In fact, fashion probably followed Adonijah, not an old dying King David. And Adonijah was, oh, you know, working during the years, suspecting I'm next in line to be king, so I better get my relationships going. And he gains a great relationship with the high priest during that time, who was Abathar. We're going to call him impious Abathar. Because the irony is he's supposed to be holy, but he's not. He's impious. So impious Abathar becomes one of his loyal subjects. And then he knows that, hey, if I'm going to rule this nation well, I need King David's best general. So he goes right after Joab, brutish Joab. And brutish Joab possibly wore a scar down his face and his skin was just darkly tanned, and he had a gnarly beard, and he always had his sword on his side, and he had muscles bulging, and his, his forearms were probably my thighs, and this guy was just a warrior, tried and true. And Adonijah felt like he had the support he needed. The high priest, impious Abathar, and the greatest general Israel's ever known under King David himself, Brutus Joab. And so there he is, and he feels like the time is right. His dad's about to die. He's got this Abishag chick up in his bed. And he takes his following, puts up posters all over the town. The newspapers have been running front page ads. Adonijah has a vision for Israel. And the day has come and he takes his following down to Enrogel. And there he has his platform. And they offer up hundreds of sacrifices to God. And they have a feast together. They're coronating Adonijah, the audacious Adonijah. And everyone's there celebrating, Adonijah is king. That's why Solomon looks out the window and thinks, something's not right. Where is everybody? 
Then Nathan, that faithful prophet who had accused David of his sin with Bathsheba back in 2 Samuel, Nathan the prophet grabs Bathsheba, David's adulterous wife, um, and he says, we have a problem. Did you hear what Adonijah's doing? He's proclaimed himself to be king. Do you know what this means for you, Bathsheba? You and Solomon are going to die. He's going to put an end to you guys because he's going to take the throne without any resistance. No rivals. And Bathsheba recognizes this is a dire situation. What do we do? Well, this is my plan. You go in to David's palace and explain to him what you've heard. I know he's not reading the papers, so he can't possibly know what's going on, keeping it a secret from David. So, so go, go and tell David what's going on. And I'm going to follow up five minutes after you and, and say the same thing, just expand on it, so that David senses the urgency of this. So, so Bathsheba goes, and she goes into the throne room, and David sees her, and he smiles, and he says, what's up, Bathsheba? Um, David, do you remember... Um, David sits up a little more with all his strength that he can. Do, do you remember when you promised me that Solomon would be the next king? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, of course. I, I, I plan on him being king. Well, um, maybe you should know then that audacious Adonijah is right now proclaiming himself to be king and the hearts of Israel is after him. And before David could even react, the servant comes in and says, Nathan the prophet is here. And Nathan the prophet storms in and explodes. David, how come you haven't told me about this? Did, did you change your mind on us? Is Adonijah to be the king? What, what, what's going on? And by this time, David's trembling. And he's trying to gather his thoughts. And he's thinking fast. And, and he's, here's the plan, guys. We need to execute immediately. Solomon, Solomon's been listening eagerly the whole time. Give Solomon my mule. Grab all of the loyal servants left. Uh, brave Benaniah, the second general. Uh, um, Zadok, the second high priest. And, um, and Nathan. Grab those three and, and let's have our own coronation for Solomon. And so they do that. And they go down. And um, they're only about half a mile away from Adonijah's celebration. And there they anoint Solomon king, and they are offering sacrifices, and all the rest of Israel sees he's on David's own donkey. This is legit. Forget Adonijah. And so they follow Solomon, and they say, even Nathan the prophet's there. God is truly with this. And so they're there, and um, they start chanting, long live King Solomon, long live King Solomon, as they bring him up to the throne of David. And there he's seated on David's actual throne. Back in Enrogel, where audacious Adonijah is having his coronation party, he decides it's time to make a speech. So he gets up and taps the glass, and everyone hushes in expectation. And Adonijah says, my kingdom. I want to, first of all, congratulate. And instantly, in the midst of that pause, they hear bouncing off the canyon walls, long live King Solomon. And everyone starts looking around a little nervously. And Adonijah feigns a smile and keeps going with his speech. 
And then suddenly Jonathan, a servant of the king, runs in. I have bad news. I have bad news. And he, he shares the news with everyone. Solomon is the actual legitimate king. He's actually on the throne. I saw the whole thing. And the face of audacious Adonijah, of brutish Joab, of impious Abathar, and all the other rebels turns pale. See ya. (laughs) They all leave. (laughs) They all go home. And Joab leaves too. And Abathar leaves as well. And Adonijah says, oh my goodness, what do I do? So he runs into the tabernacle and he clings on to the altar. It's, it's, it's a lot like if you're in trouble with the police, you see this in the movies, you go run into a church. <laughs> you know, they can't arrest you there or something. Um, he goes and clings to the altar and says, don't let me die, don't let me die. So Solomon says, okay, um, Drag him out. They drag him out. They bring him in front of Solomon. And Solomon says, Audacious Adonijah, what am I going to do with you? Solomon said in verse 52 of chapter 1, If he, referring to Audacious Adonijah, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But, listen up, Adonijah, if wickedness is found in you, you shall die. So go home, live your life, just be faithful to me. That's mercy. And that's how Solomon, that's his first judicial act as king. An act of mercy. Well, David is about to kick the bucket. So in chapter 2, he calls Solomon and gives him the final exhortations. Verse 2, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Note that. It is the way of all the earth to die. All right? Uh, some of you are Some of you are more advanced in your years, and you know this. It's knocking on your door. But, I said some, I said some, but there's others of us, there's others of us in here who think that we're immortal, we're at the prime of our life, (laughs) thinking about marriage and colleges and these guys over here. It's the way of all the earth to die, it's going to happen. All of us need to realize that, that this world is so short. And David is feeling it, he's realizing it. And so he says to Solomon essentially two things. First, Solomon, love God with all your heart. If you do so, Solomon, there will never lack a king in Israel to sit on the throne. A little foreshadowing from our author, because we know that the kings fail and Israel gets cast into captivity, as we see there, 586 is when Judah will fall. Secondly, verse 5, Moreover, you also know that what brutish Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, 
how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace. So this was an unfair murder that brutish Joab had slaughtered on two of Israel's generals. Not to mention, David doesn't even mention that he killed Absalom, David's other son, when David asked him not to. But brutish Joab, that's the way he does things. He finishes the job, whether David likes it or not. And so David now is instructing Solomon, listen, there's a couple of enemies in this kingdom you need to deal with. The first is Joab, brutish Joab. The second is Shimi in verse 8. And there is also with you Shimi, the son of Gerah, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. What happened was Shimi, I'm going to call him smirking Shimi, because he's a scoffer, he's a mocker. That's what he did. When David was driven from the throne by Absalom, Shimi, who's of the tribe of King Saul, so there was definitely a rivalry between him and David there, he made fun of David, not only verbally, but physically casting stones at David as he retreated from Jerusalem into the wilderness, and he cursed David. David did nothing to him. It says there in Second Samuel that David said, look, uh, it may be that he is God's instrument to curse me. I can't kill him. <laughs> I don't want to kill God's instrument. But of course, now that David sees that Absalom was in the wrong and David was restored to the throne, he realizes, yeah, smirking Shimmy needs to die. He was totally in the wrong. So knock him off too, Solomon. And of course, Solomon himself has a couple of enemies as well. Not only Joab, Brutus Joab, and smirking Shimmy for his father's sake, but audacious Adonijah and impious Abathar. So we come now David dies in verse 10, and in verse 13, Solomon begins to rule, and he kills his enemies. Verse 13 starts with audacious Adonijah. Now, Adonijah was shown mercy, but something sticky happens. Adonijah hasn't given up a throne. He did not live his whole life thinking he's going to get it just to watch his younger brother sit there. So Adonijah is thinking to work under the radar. So he very slyly takes Bathsheba, Solomon's own mother, and says to her, Bathsheba, you have a way with Solomon that I will never have. Do me a favor. You know, poor me, I thought I was going to be king. All Israel wanted me to be king, and now I'm not. I do deserve a bone, right? So go to King Solomon and ask him one favor for me. I want beautiful Abishag, the one who kept David company. Seems innocent enough, but stop. Abishag became David's property. So Abishag beautiful Abishag, became part of his harem. Now, in this culture, whoever had the harem of the former king was the king. It it was the sign of, I'm taking what belonged to the former king. I'm taking his title. This is an audacious request from Adonijah. Are we surprised? 
he is slyly trying to, maybe he'll let me have Abishag. Because technically, David never married her. But in the eyes of Israel, they were together. So at least, I'm technically safe in asking for this. But the Israelites will all look at her and realize, hey, that was David's woman. Long live Adonijah. That's his thought process. Now, what's Bathsheba thinking here? One of two things. I get to play matchmaker. This is wonderful. Or she knows exactly the death sentence Adonijah is asking for. She knows that Solomon isn't going to be stupid enough to let this happen. Whichever her motives, she goes to Solomon. I have one small favor to ask of you, she says. Sure, that's a small favor. I'll give you anything for you, Bathsheba. Um, Audacious Adonijah wants beautiful Abishag. Whoa, the smile turned into a frown immediately, and Solomon thundered, Give him the whole kingdom, why don't you? And right then, brave Benaniah, go, kill him. Benaniah storms out, and 30 minutes later, Adonijah's done, gone. Enemy number one is knocked off. Number two is Impious Abathar, that high priest. Now, he's not actually killed. He just simply demotes him. Strips off the high priestly garment, says, you're no longer the high priest, just go live at home. Have your normal nine-to-five job, watch TV, whatever, be bored. You're no longer important around here. He leaves him alone. Enemy number three, brutish Joab in verse 28. Now Joab sees what's going on, Solomon knocking down enemy after enemy. So he runs, and he goes to the tabernacle, grabs the horns of the altar, and says, you can't get me, I'm in the safe zone. And the guards say, Solomon, what do we do? Well, drag him out and kill him. Oh, okay. So they drag him out and kill him. Now, do know, you might be wondering, what's up with the grabbing the horns of the altar thing? The law said in Exodus 21, verse 14, that that was to be a safety zone for those who had accidentally killed someone or done any other crime and they felt like they were unjustly being punished. They could go run there and seek shelter until things are sorted out. This is what Joab's doing. But Solomon says, look, Joab, you're no innocent guy. You intentionally killed two people that David's accusing you of. So you don't even have the right to be there. Slaughter him. So Joab's head rolled. Then the fourth enemy is smirking Shimmy in verse 36, and it's a rather lengthy account. Basically, Solomon put smirking Shimmy on probation. He said, stay in your house. Do not leave Jerusalem. If you do, you killed yourself. It works for a while, but two servants run away. He chases after them. They go past Jerusalem. He chases them. Solomon had his little GPS navigation locked on him, and, oh, pressed the button, and he was taken care of. So (laughs) Shimmy was taken care of. So the enemies die. Now, that's stage one. Solomon, it says there at the end of chapter two, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Two applications I want to pull from this, Solomon's defeating of his enemies. The first is, Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Exalted himself. Jesus made it clear that if you're to exalt yourself, you will be brought down. 
And Adonijah was brought down. Definitely. It's such a, it's such a different story. Two sons of David. Adonijah exalts himself. I'm going to be the king. Solomon just sits and waits. Well, God will choose the king. I'm just going to watch. And who ended up being the king? Solomon. It's, it's perfectly illustrating what Jesus had always said. Um, he used the parable of the marriage supper. Hey, when you go to a marriage feast, don't go find yourself the best seat. Because <laughs> when you do, you're just going to be asked to move down and everyone's going to look and laugh. But when you go to the feast, instead just find an average seat, even the lowest. And you know what? The host is going to say, whoa, what are you doing there? Come up here. And everyone's going to look and say, oh, we want to be him. <laughs> And that's, that was the route of Solomon. Just, you know, God's going to promote me. I'm not going to promote myself like the devil did. I'm not going to go there with pride. The second application would be, if you presently have opportunity to repent and have received the Lord's mercy for your sins, for any other mistakes, do not take that lightly. Don't assume that mercy is going to be there every day of your life. Now, I'm not saying God's mercy is limited, but his mercy is to some extent, and please don't nitpick my words here, um, it, it is to some extent conditional. Solomon told Abathar, here's your mercy. If you're going to treat me as your king, you're going to get all the mercy from me you can get. But if, if you take my mercy and throw it aside and say, I don't want, I want to be the king over you, it's the death sentence for you. And God comes to all of the sinners and says, like Solomon did to Abathar, hey, you know what? I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to show you mercy. Here's the condition. You receive my mercy... If I'm your king, if we make Jesus the Lord of our life rather than making us the Lord of our life and dethroning him, if we let him be king and submit ourselves to him, his mercy will extend forever. And yes, we might fail, we might blow it, we might accidentally betray our king, but we still keep him as king. His mercy will endure forever. But the minute we start to say, Forget your mercy. I don't need your mercy. In fact, why can't it be that I tell you what to do? My way, I'm taking the throne. That is the attitude and the action that sends people to hell. And if you're receiving God's mercy tonight and you're persisting in your being king, not him, the Bible does not guarantee that mercy will be there for you all the days of your life. You can harden your heart to the point that there is no more mercy. Um, Hebrews 12 talks about Esau. It said that he sought the reward with tears, but there was found no place of repentance for him. He, want, he was sorry for what he did, but there was no place for repentance for him. It was that he couldn't repent. His heart had gone over the brink. And that's the warning there for us. If, if you're in the king's mercy tonight, don't shun it. 
say, thank you, and you can definitely be king. Stay there. I'm going to be your servant from now on. Don't go the way of audacious Adonijah. So that's the first event. Solomon overtakes the enemies. They die. Now we come to chapter 3. This we see that Solomon finds his love. Initially, he finds his love in God. Now, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building her own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, um, Solomon would do this because you marry the daughter of a king in another country, you officially become best friends with that nation. Egypt's not going to attack Solomon because their daughter lives there. We're not going to do that. And Solomon's not going to attack the in-laws. He might want to sometimes, but he realizes that there's a lot at stake. So this official peace treaty in line. And um, that's what goes on there. Um, It's the first seed of um, bad step for Solomon. We'll definitely not be good for him later, but Mike will tell you about that next week. Now the people, verse 2, were sacrificing at the high places because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. Remember, David wanted to build a permanent temple, but the Lord is still in the tabernacle because David couldn't. Solomon's going to build the house. Now because of this, our author says, because there was no house, the people were just wandering around and sacrificing to God wherever they wanted, namely the high places. The high places were called high places because they were on high places, like on the tops of hills. And they're generally in wooded areas under the trees where they did some shady business. And um, there... Some of you are a little slower. There... That's where the pagans worshipped. They had shrines and orgies and stuff went on there and all their worship, the way that they expressed their worship to their fertility gods. And the Israelites were taking part a little bit. Maybe some were actually worshipping Yahweh, but they were not doing it Yahweh's way. God specifically said in Leviticus, you shall not make any sacrifice outside of the tabernacle. So, but the author is pointing out this. This is going to be key later. That they're doing this because there is no temple So the spiritual state of Israel is hinging on Solomon's action to accomplish his goal, namely to build the temple. So as long as he delays that job, Israel is going to continue to worship in the high places. This will be key later, so just note that. Now verse 3, Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only... He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So here's Solomon, one of the few kings you'll read that actually gets to say he loved Yahweh. However, this love was not in accord to Deuteronomy 6.4, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Because Though he loved the Lord, 80% yes, Lord. No, 90% yes, Lord. Only I spent 10% of my time on the high places. This will always come back to bite. 
if we love the Lord, only I do really enjoy my college football. I, I, I really, really look forward to that more than anything. Oh, yeah, I guess I can do my chapter a day if I wake up early enough. Oh, but you're ready before the game even starts. 90% for the Lord, but 10%, you know, it might seem innocent, but look, God wants the whole heart. See, the, the half heart thing can work. It's like a half tank of fuel. You're going to start going with the Lord, and everything's going to look fine, like Solomon, but you're only going to get halfway to the destination. The full tank of gas goes the same speed, but it goes twice as far. And so there's this warning the author inserts, um, and again, you'll see the significance in a minute, that if you're not wholeheartedly, entirely, 100%, causing Jesus to be your treasure, all or nothing, willing to give everything up to the point that you would say with Paul, for me, death is gain. It's the best thing that can happen to me. If, that, if that's not your heart for the Lord, you're at danger of stopping halfway, as Solomon ultimately did. So we see the foreshadowing problem of what happened to Solomon. He loved God, yes, and we, I think all of us who would give up a Sunday night would say, yes, I love God, I'm, I'm right there with you. But the, the question is, is it the whole heart? So Solomon initially, he, yes, his, he's finding love in the Lord. So much so that he goes to one of the high places at Gibeon in verse 5. Um, and he offers there a thousand sacrifices. Can you imagine the bonfire on that hill? This was a lofty sacrifice, and God noticed. And he comes to him in verse 5 like a genie and says, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon, I'm the, I'm the God that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the God that doesn't tell you when I'm hungry because why would I need to tell you I need anything when the whole universe is mine and it fits like dirt in my fingernail? So Solomon, yes, me, that God, I'm coming to you and saying, what do you want? You have one wish, buddy. Wow. What would have run through my mind before loving Jesus with my whole heart would be... Gold, girls, glory. What else does a man want? The three G's of manhood in the world. And Solomon's probably thinking, oh gosh, you sure I can't get three wishes? Aladdin got three? Come on, just one? Gold, girls, glory. Gold, girls, glory. Gold, girls, glory. I need wisdom for this. Oh, I want wisdom. It was a very wise decision. He recognized he's 20 years old at this time. Who is he to lead this great nation that David had been leading? Who is he? And so we see that there's thanksgiving on Solomon's part. He says in verse 6, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him or kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Thank you. I'm so appreciative of that, Lord. And now, O oh Lord my God, 
You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, which was um, a phrase for, I don't know how to administrate. He's being humble here. First he thanks God. Now he's just totally humble before God. I, I don't know. Why am I on the throne? In verse 8, he asks, And your servant is in the midst of a people whom you have chosen, a great number, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to discern this, your great people? Well, it pleased God. Whoa! You know, I looked the whole world for a man that's not looking for girls' glory and gold. I'm pleased, Solomon. So because of this, verse 12, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also, so you're wise, I'm going to be the wisest guy ever, but also I give you what you have not asked, both gold and glory riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. He did not give him girls. Do you notice that? He already has a girl. Apparently, in the Lord's mind, that's all that he needed. So Solomon is now a wise guy, wisest ever. He pens the Proverbs, which are just a chunk out of his um, 3,000 that he utters. And he's definitely wise. As Michael share next week, the Queen of Sheba comes and all these other kings from around come just to hear him, just to gaze upon the glory of his kingdom. Now, to affirm that Solomon is indeed a wise guy, verse 16 brings a situation. The author inserted, there's probably hundreds and thousands like this, but he thought one was fit to show that indeed he is wise. Now, the story is this. There are two women, for the sake of um, not making this ambiguous, I'm going to call woman good and woman bad. They're living in the same house. They both have a child about the same time. Both children are in their infancy stage. Now, in the, uh, woman bad had her child sleeping in her bed with her. Um, which younger people if don't do that. We're sm- we, that's why we have cribs. If you put your child in your bed, you roll over on them and they die. And that's exactly what happened. Woman bad rolled over on her child in the night. The child died. She woke up in the middle of the night for a potty break and realized, oh, goodness. My child's dead. So she has a plan. Woman bad takes her dead child goes into the room of woman good, switches the children out, and then goes back to bed and wakes up and hears woman good shrieking. What's wrong? My child's dead! I don't know what to do! Oh, that sucks for you. But then child good, when the tears finally are wiped away, she realizes, it's not quite like my child. I thought it had a birthmark right there. It's not. You have my child. You took it. You thief. I did not. And there's probably a cat fight, and the domestic violence police probably came over and settled things down. And then they went to the state court, and the judge said, 
And I'm surmising that they went through this process. The judge said, beats me. Sounds like it's, uh, I don't know whose child it is. You're not lying, you're not lying, I don't know. Well, they went to the Supreme Court, and the judge there said, boy, looks like Solomon needs to take this one. And so finally, it's been running in the papers, front page for weeks. Whose child is it? You know, Who's the guilty one? Who's lying? And the, all the nations abuzz with this story. Whose is it? And finally, the case comes to Solomon. Woman bad and woman good come in, and the one child in the middle so whose is it? I tell them the story. It's mine. It's mine. All right. I suppose we want joint custody. Literally. <laughs> Give me a sword. And then you can imagine the sweat starting to pound, the heart starting to beat in the real mother, mother good, in her chest. And oh my gosh, what's he going to do? And mother bad is going, yes, yes. So he takes the sword. And he says, I'm going to divide this child in two rip its head off or something. Joint custody, that's only fair. And so he's about to do it. And then finally, Mother Good, who, whose child it really is, yells, stop! It's her child. Just let the thing live. Give it to her. I don't care who has it. Just let it live. And the other one said, no, kill it, kill it, kill it. And Solomon looked at them both and said, I know exactly whose child it is, the one that cares about it. Give the child to this Mother Good. And she had her child. And that was brilliant. That was just... And the whole nation, wow, look at Solomon. We went weeks in the courts and our stupid judges couldn't figure it out. And Solomon just... And it took him like half a day to figure this out. Like 30 minutes. He's a wise guy indeed. And so Solomon's wisdom was a buzz, And it was confirmed. And so we see... Okay, first, Solomon kills his enemies. Second, he lo- he's finding love in God to the point that he's asking for wisdom. And then third, we now see that his wisdom is being used, all the blessings he receives from God are being used for the benefit of people and God. In chapter 6, he'll start to build the temple with all the resources his wisdom gives him and that David supplied but he's using it for people right now. So, in chapter um, 4, the chapter describes Solomon's great wisdom. In, chap- in verse 7, it lists, he had this system where he put 12 um, elders out throughout the land. So there's 12 districts and one person in charge of each district. And each district was responsible for providing food for the king's house, which was Big time. Uh, if you read it, you know how much food his house required. Um, that district was responsible for requiring, uh, providing the food one month of the year. Sounds like a great system. Pretty easy tax system. The problem is Judah was neglected in this system. They didn't have to contribute at all. And this probably led to some of the bitterness when Solomon died, why the ten tribes hated Judah, because... That's probably one of the reasons some tension may have started to mount here. Then, in verse 20, we see that they ate and drank and were happy. The economy is soaring. And in verse 25, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Bathsheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. I love that. You see, every man in the kingdom has his own vine and fig tree just to kick back in the afternoon and read a book on his Kindle or play with his iPad and just 
That's prosperity. That's a kingdom that's having it good. And that's what Solomon led them to. David secured the borders. Well, Saul united the, nation, uh, the tribes. David secured the borders. And now Solomon enriched that place. So kingdoms started to come. Verse 34, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth, a hyperbole, who had heard of his wisdom. Now, um, this is a foreshadow of the millennial kingdom. All right, real brief, because um, I have a little more I want to say on other stuff. The Abrahamic covenant, which God gave to Abraham throughout Genesis, the promise of offspring and land, um, the land was a big deal in that covenant. You will have the land from the Nile to the Euphrates River. You will have that. Israel's never actually possessed all of that, even to this day. Now, I know here in chapter 4, it does say that his kingdom went from the Nile to the Euphrates. Um, I failed to get a map. I was going to show you. But um, this isn't actually his... um, Let's see. He's having tribute from the Nile to the Euphrates. Okay, these kings are giving him tribute. But Israel doesn't actually occupy that land. Israel is only occupying, as I read in verse 25, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and Beersheba is just under the Dead Sea. So Israel doesn't really live in that area. This is key for dispensational theology, which is, gen, uh, which is what Mike holds here at this um, Bible study, is we're dispensational theology. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the biggest distinction in this type of theology is that we believe the land has never been occupied by Israel. Therefore, Jesus will return literally on David's literal throne for 1,000 years and rule a Jewish nation over that promised land in which we, the church, will have a part to play in. This is all after the tribulation. Read Revelation 20. That's where it fits. It's all right before the new heaven and new earth. So that's what we hold based upon the fact that Israel never has occupied all the land. And God has to, because of his unconditional promise to Abraham, he has to come true with the promise. So that's um, where that's all going. Now, that all the kings came to Solomon and that it was so wealthy that chapter 10 tells us that silver was counted as nothing and um, silver and stones from the street were equal value. That's what he says. Solomon only cared about gold because silver was just like stones. It was so plentiful. This kind of success in the kingdom and this kind of fame with all the kings coming to it is exactly what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Mount Zion is going to be lifted and elevated above all the kingdoms of the earth and all the nations, Isaiah 2, will say, come, let us go to Mount Zion, to the house of the Lord. Let us see the great king. And so Jesus is going to have a kingdom like Solomon's And he's going to be a king like David. Those are who those people foreshadow. So we see these hints of eschatology, study of the end times, happening right here. Now, in chapter 5, Solomon prepares to build the temple. And basically it says that he gathers um, slaves from those who are not Jews within Israel. And um, he also drafts some other people to go get some wood. And he makes this treaty with Hiram, who's up in Tyre and Sidon, which is up north. Um, it's map number three, if you can throw it up there, just so you can see Tyre and Sidon up there. They ship lumber all the way down the coast to Jerusalem, and so he 
begins to start the project. What I found interesting was that Solomon drafted non-Jews, so let's say Gentiles, he drafted Gentiles to help build the temple. Let me say that again. Solomon drafted Gentiles to help build God's temple. Does this ring a bell with Ephesians 2, with 1 Peter 2? That you, one of the mysteries of the age, is that the Gentiles are the living stones being gathered with the Jews to build God's temple. Read it, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. That's a really cool foreshadow there. Now, I'm going to close tonight with my hints about the significance there in chapter 3. Why don't you go to slide 2. There is what is called a chiastic outline in literature. Now, the Hebrews were big on chiastic outlines. Most of their Old Testament books are based, and some people think the Gospel of Matthew, written by a Jew to the Jews, is based upon this type of chiastic outline. What is a chiastic outline, you ask? Good question. It works like this, and you can see there, the X marks this pivotal event. And surrounding the pivotal event, let's look at it as the 50-yard line on a football field. You have leading up to the pivotal event, steps. 10-yard line, 20-yard line, 30, 40, you hit 50. But the pivotal event happens so that it turns the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 on its head. It reverses it and does the order, those um, points, again in descending order. That's like the football field. You go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, pivotal moment, but then you don't go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 again. You go 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. If that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it's right there on the board why I did this. The chiastic outline. You see that the outline goes 1, 2, 3, pivotal moment X, and then 3, 2, 1. Not 1, 2, 3. I did it in reverse on purpose because it's how chapters 1 through 11, the life of Solomon, flow. Um, You notice that the reason the numbers are reversed is because the theme is the exact same as the one before the pivotal moment, only there is a subtle change to the theme. So the author here is trying to show us the rise of Solomon, something happened in the middle, and then there was a steady decline. Now, I'm only going to just give the overview of this, of course, because Mike is covering most of these chapters next week. I have, through this teaching, through this last hour or whatever, um, done one, two, and three. His enemies died, chapter two. He killed off the four. He's got control. Solomon loves God so much so that he doesn't ask for gold, glory, girls. He asks for wisdom. And then the third was that he begins to demonstrate this wisdom for the people and for God. And we saw that he has this um, administrative process and everything, that he's, all the resources he's getting because of his wisdom and everything he's gaining, he's outputting so energetically to the kingdom to help the people have a better life. That's what he's been doing. That's what we've been seeing. But then, later, chapters 9 and 10, we see no longer is he using wisdom for the people and for God. He's using the wisdom for himself. He starts to gather gold and just masses of gold and masses of women. And the wisdom begins to turn inward. Then, number two, no longer does he find love in God, he finds love in women. And he multiplies 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women. Basically, you could have a date with um, each woman at each meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 
for an entire year and finally get through them. Well, it's a lot of dates. And then, number one, we saw in chapter two that his enemies die, but at the very end, his enemies rise. After he amassed many women in chapter 11, it actually says there in verse 20, 11, 23, actually 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, verse 23. God also raised up an adversary to him, verse 26. Jeroboam da, 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 lifted up his hand against the king. What happens? Of course, you have the outline. It's, I gave it away. But what happens to make all this change? Just... Um, Without getting into it, chapter 6, he starts the temple. Chapter 8, he finishes the temple. What's up with chapter 7? It says that Solomon was building his house for 13 years. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and we think these authors are just like, go to school. Temple, temple, he built his house. Temple, temple, what is, they're so random. It's like, they just shoot a shotgun and there's my book. Absolutely not. Man, this author's brilliant. Look what he shows us. And in the very smack dab middle, he's building the temple. He finished the temple, but take this break and show during this, he's building his house, which took longer to build, which was more magnificent than the temple. Remember we said that Solomon's heart was not whole for the Lord? It said that he also sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. This is what happens. I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm building his temple. I'm building up his glory. But at the same time, we're working to build our glory, our house, magnify ourselves. The two can't mix. Somewhere it's going to give, and your one, two, three going up is going to go down three, two, one. So that is my proposition on what happened to Solomon. Because we think, how in the world does a guy who has wisdom given by God, the wisest man in the world, die like a fool? How does that happen? Solomon acquired wisdom, but he didn't necessarily always apply his wisdom. He did early on, but there was too much of self-involved to continue it. That is why I open tonight rather mysteriously with Proverbs 19.27. Solomon impaled himself on his own proverb. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Cease to hear instruction, and what's going to happen to your wise life? It's going to fall off that path. So, Mike will have more details on the decline of Solomon. That's the incline we saw. And that is, um, that's Solomon. So, Christian, it's my admonition that we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, our whole soul, and our entire strength, that there would be no phrase to say, The Christian loved Yahweh, only he had high places. That we could say the Christian loved Yahweh, only he couldn't give enough to him. That's the way I want to go down. Giving away a thousand wives, not keeping them. (laughs) 
or whatever else is. So, Father, that's...